0: A Bible, or a smartphone, or tablet, or some device, you'll be looking at the text this morning. We're going to be in First John chapter two. Right at the end of the New Testament, you'll find First John, First John chapter two. Um, so we we tend to just kind of preach um, verse, um, you know, chapter by chapter, working our way through books of Scripture. Um, finished First Corinthians in the fall going to do First John now, and, and typically we alternate kind of an Old Testament, New Testament book. Um, but we do that believing um, that what we need is, is the whole counsel of Scripture, um, that all of Scripture is profitable and beneficial. Um, it forces us to preach texts that we wouldn't always preach, um, to look at things that we wouldn't always look at. Um, it, it, it also helps that when your maybe particular pet sin Um, Comes up in scripture, you don't think someone's added you to the pastor. There was just the next passage up, the next text up. And so we have been in 1 John for just the last couple weeks, and John is writing this letter. It's a circular letter, which means it was passed along to a group of churches. It wasn't sent to one specific church, but it was to a group of churches around the city of Ephesus, where John was actually an elder in the church in Ephesus. And he is writing to a group of churches where false teachers have emerged. And false teachers have come in and they're basically have kind of pulled out of the church and they're claiming that Jesus um, just wasn't divine, that he wasn't um, both God and man in the flesh. And they have begun to hold up knowledge. Uh, Gnosticism is kind of the primary thing Um, that they could have experience and knowledge, and it could be apart from Scripture, and it would be sufficient. And so, John is writing a really pastoral letter. He's looking to give assurance, to give hope, to give peace to a group of people who are going, wait a second, these folks were in the church with us, and now they're saying some things that don't seem to jive with Scripture, and what do we do? And so, he addresses the false teachers in this letter, but for the most part, he is looking to simply to minister to, to pastor, to give assurance to those who are in Christ, um, and, and honestly is looking to, to draw out, hey, if this isn't where you're at, then you shouldn't have assurance that you may not be in Christ. And so last week what we did is in the, we, we started chapter 2, and we looked that what John is doing is he's going to lay out some kind of test, some criteria for us to know whether we should have assurance or not, to know whether or not we're walking with Jesus well or not. And the first one we looked at was a moral test, is do we obey his commands? And the second we looked at was kind of a social test, do we love believers? And the third test is a doctrinal test, it's, it's what do we believe? But he actually doesn't follow those first two with the third one, that's going to be next week. And, and what we see is that we're reminded that this is actually pastoral in John, Right? Because he's not there able to watch facial expressions and body language to see how it's being received. He's writing this letter and he's almost perceiving there may be some concern of, man, we're sp- like, in our obedience we know whether we're walking with Jesus or not. Like, how can any of us walk sufficient enough to feel good about that? And he begins to just to care for him. See, often when we think about passing on information, um, even in a sermon, in a YouTube, like how to do it video, right, it's really linear, right? We just say, hey, here's step one, here's step two, here's step three, here's step four, you know, do them all, and you'll get the final result. But what we see when we understand in conversation and pastoral care that it's very, it's very rarely linear, Right? The people have questions, they have objections, we pause, we go back, we come forward, we step over here, and that's what John is doing this morning, is he really is going to just kind of take a quick aside to check and make sure, after he's laid out the first two tests of assurance, are they doing okay, right? And so the question that he's going to be asking of, of his readers, and the question that we want to be asking this morning is this, is, Where's your affection for Jesus this morning? Right, like one of those questions you're like, oh, I'm at church, I like Jesus, right? But he's asking us, where's your affection for Jesus? Would you walk in this morning saying it's, it's, it's deep and it's warm and it's abiding and, and man, we're, we're doing well. Would you come in and say, actually, it's, it's a little cold. It hasn't always been, but it is right now. Or maybe you're in this place of just indifference, right? Remember, he's writing to believers, and so there's an assumption that he's asking them, like, you know, where are you at, believer? Let alone those who don't yet know Christ, who would not have any affection for him. They might have some knowledge about him, but wouldn't have affection for him. That the Spirit would begin to just kind of let that question swirl in our hearts and minds this morning. It is not what is your, like, shoot from the hip answer but truly where's your affection for Jesus this morning so let's pick up we're going to begin in verse 12 of chapter 2 of 1st John and John writes this I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one And I write to you, children, because you know the Father. And I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you're strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world." And the world is passing away, passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You'll notice that he's got some repetition here. And repetition is, is kind of just the, the mother of all learning, right? Like when you're really trying to, to set something in place, you're going you're gonna to repeat yourself. You're going to make sure you're being heard. And so really verses 12, 13, and 14, he just kind of repeats the same thing twice, right, as he's looking to, to highlight it, and to focus on it. Now look, commentators for, your, for a couple thousand years as they've studied this letter are going to argue about who, dear, who are the children, who are the fathers, and who are the young men, right? Like is he speaking specifically to the young men and to the elderly and then to like younger folks? Or is he saying dear children because he's a pastor and he's an older man and he's talking to his congregation and then there's only two groups, young men and old men, Or is he talking about developmental stages, right? The young children are new believers, and the young men are folks who are walking with Jesus, and the old men are those who have walked with Jesus for a long time. And you'll find no agreement, right, on whether it's talking about um, belief, like developmental stages, whether it's talking about age in general. And ultimately, here's the thing, it doesn't matter. Because what he's saying is he's writing to, to us, He's writing to them. He's writing to the whole church. And he's saying it's, it's to all of us. He doesn't single out, um, hey, if you're in church leadership, this section's for you. Hey, if you really want to take your faith to a new level, this section's for you. Hey, if you're, if you're serious about your faith, unlike some of them, he's just writing to the church, to believers, saying, hey, young men, older ones, children, like hear what I have to say. And what he's going to say is this, is that we should have affection for Jesus. We should. And he's going to give us some reasons why we should have affection for Jesus. First and foremost, what he's done so far in this letter is he's been reminding us of the foundational truths of what God has done. And that if we believe that we have one who forgives us, one who is a mediator on our behalf, right? If we believe these things about God, that it will have an effect on our life, right? Like that we don't, we can't move on to like higher things in spirituality if we can't even begin, right, to get the basics down, right? There's nothing to move on from the gospel. That Jesus has rescued us, that he has forgiven us, that he still stands at the right hand of the Father advocating on behalf of us. We don't move on from this. It would be like telling someone, hey, I'm not sure if you love your spouse yet, but let's let's talk about how to do some other things as a spouse, right? You're like, Man, if we, don't, if we don't love our spouse, there's no point in talking about, like, specific marriage techniques. So, he's like, we're not going to move on to talk about specific techniques to deal with false teachers or how to, how to know if we're walking in obedience, if first and foremost, if we just don't love Jesus. Like, what is your affection for him this morning? And so, he begins with giving us some reasons why we should have affection for Jesus. Look at verse 12. I'm writing to you little children. Remember, John's an older man writing to the church. Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Listen, super easy verse just to run past. You've been in church and you're like, I think I've heard that my sins are forgiven. How do we run past that? How do we run past the fact that we stand before a holy God, right? Who who because of his holiness will pour wrath out upon sin. And we stand here innocent and holy and forgiven before him with the ability to know him and to trust him, to treasure him. No longer guilty no longer a rebel, no longer an enemy of God because our sins have been forgiven. And he tells us it's not because you've done something to merit it, it's not because you've been so obedient. He says your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Because of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. That Jesus has taken the wrath and the beating and the mocking and the humiliation and the scourging and the crucifixion and the death and the separation from the Father so that we don't and so the first thing he wants settled as he's writing the church, he's just saying, look, don't forget this. Don't forget your sins are covered, that they're forgiven, and they're forgiven because of Jesus, right? That we're not trying to merit this this week. We're not trying to earn this. Like, do you trust this this morning? Or are you like, yeah, that's, that's helpful knowledge to have, and that kind of empowers me to live my best life now, and then maybe God will like me. And he's like, no, no, no. You're forgiven because of Jesus, for his name, for his glory. You're no longer guilty. You're his. It's why he would tell them back in chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In verse 2 of chapter 2, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. He's saying that Jesus is the one who makes us right with the Father. Would we even consider Isaiah 53 as we, as we try not to run past this? Surely he, verse 4, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We are like sheep. We have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, the iniquity of us all. Right? Like That's what Jesus has done on our behalf. For those who know him and trust him and treasure him, that we stand holy forgiven and righteous because of what Jesus has done and covered us in before God the Father this morning. That it's for God's glory, right? That it's, it's by the name of Jesus for the name of Jesus that He's able that we celebrate what he's done, right? As you look at people's sin, as you look at their past, as you look at their brokenness, and you see them restored and healed and forgiven by Jesus, you're not going, man, you have pulled yourselves up by your bootstraps. You're saying, look at what God is able. Look at what he's done. let's, Let's celebrate him for this. And it's why the psalmist would write in Psalm 79, verse 9, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver us. Atone for our sins for your name's sake. He's saying, like, we don't get forgiveness for our sake, we get it for your sake. And we are the beneficiaries of that because we're restored to the Father. We get peace now, we get eternity, we get relationship with the Father. But he says, like, for your name's sake, for your glory, would you forgive me? Why? Because then we are on display of what the Lord is able to do. That it's hope and peace for others who are currently enslaved to sin. That it doesn't have to be that way any longer. They don't have to stay there any longer. That there is redemption and forgiveness. Paul writes, even in Romans 3, listen to what he writes, verse 25. And then one final one here. This is Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, this is God speaking, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. He's saying that he forgives us so that his glory and his fame and his power and who he is is revealed to the world. Right, that he is the one who has sent forth the rescuer, he's the one that's made the way, he's the one who's worthy of worship. It's not that we have exalted ourselves to merit something from him, it's that he has stooped to give us what we cannot do ourselves. To make us his, to bring us in as sons and daughters. Church, there will be a day where I will no longer pastor, preach here. There will be a day where none of us in the room will still be breathing. There will be a day where people will have long forgotten that Redeemer in Pampa had ever existed, but there will not be a day where the name of Jesus will not be glorified. There will not be a day where his name will be forgotten, where his name will not move forward, where his name will not be powerful, will bring healing and hope and reconciliation. So we don't put our faith in a man. We don't put our faith in a system. We don't put our faith in a church, in a local place. We put our faith in Jesus because by his name we are healed. By his stripes, we are made whole. He has rescued us and brought us back to the Father. And so our affection should be stirred, right? And we give honor to those who serve us well. And we we are grateful that the Lord has given us the church to minister to us and to make us family. But ultimately, is our affection stirred for those things, or is it for Jesus? Because he's our rescuer. He is everything. Everything. and maybe this morning we, we have just gotten too comfortable with grace or maybe it's like that we don't even feel like we can receive it like it's it's too much and it overwhelms us and yet what our would our affection for Jesus be being stirred even as we are reminded that our sins are forgiven that grace has been poured out um if you've been around me and my family at all um more than, like, the last three months, I've, I've been driving the same hell damaged beat-up pickup truck for, like, 20 years, right? Things have been totaled a couple times, and it's just, like, it's just ugly as sin, and I've had it since I was in high school, and, right, it's, it's, it's gotten me a lot, to and from a lot of places. Um, but a few months ago, um, my grandfather, in his 90s, walks in and tosses his truck keys to a much nicer, much better truck than mine at me and says, here, I want you to have this and enjoy it. And it's really hard to receive that sort of generosity, right? But here's why. Because there was something about being a preacher who drives a beat-up old truck that I really wasn't worried that you were thinking about how much money I was or wasn't making, right? (laughs) Right? Because you're like, man, we probably aren't taking very good care of him. Look at his truck, you know? (laughs) Like, that, no one's, no one's thinking when, when I get out of that, like, anything other than maybe you feel sorry for me, right? <laughs> well, then I get out of a nicer, newer truck that's been given as a grace, just out of generosity to me, and I'm like, oh, man, now what do people think? And I feel like I want to justify myself, right? If we're not careful, that's kind of how we treat Jesus, That he's given us this beautiful gift of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness. And we're like, okay, but how do I justify myself? Jesus, I see what you've done, but I want to add a little something to it so that people don't think like I was in that big of a need. Instead of receiving this just kindness, this mercy that is undeserved, and too much, and over the top, and glorious, and good, and instead of just saying, thank you. Taking it for what it is. The second reason that we should have affection for Jesus in 1 John 2 is this. Look at verses 13 and 14. Is that we have overcome, that we're, we're strong. Listen to what he says. So I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have, you have overcome the evil one. Um, go down to verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are Strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. He doesn't say you might overcome. You will overcome. You have. You have overcome. Look, it's not a fair fight. It's not like we're wondering whether the Lord or the devil is going to win here, but the devil, this, this is his world to some extent, right? Like the Lord has given that to him for a time period and he is lost. The cross is a reminder that he is lost. The death does not have sting for believers. And there's a day where Jesus will split the sky, and everyone who has doubted who was going to come out as victor will be proven that Jesus is the conquering king. Right? We, we know that. But in the meantime, we still live in the presence of sin with an enemy who's seeking to devour, who's prowling around, and he's an accuser. And so he's reminding the church, you have overcome. But we have an accuser. And he likes to do a couple things. He likes to accuse you of sin that you have already committed to show you that you're not good enough, that you're not worthy. He loves to bring that to mind, right? And to, to look to just, man, God doesn't like you. Do you remember what you've done? How could you be worthy? How, right? And it's just this constant Lies, this accusing in our ear. Or he does a second thing. He loves to tempt to future sin, right? And so he begins to lay out for us, Man, if you did that, that would feel good. This would give you all that you've longed for. This would give you all that you've dev- de- um, desired. Right? And, and so what the, the accuser is trying to do is he's trying to either, right, to distract us from the goodness of God, or he's trying to show us that he's bad, like the way that God's not good because he's holding out on us. Or that sin will somehow give us something better than God. And it's not always even in blatant sin. Sometimes it's just that we begin to trust that God's not good and so we get really freaked out by politics. And it shakes us at our core. And we fear for the future. Or maybe we fear loss of relationships. Or we, in the midst of loss, The accuser is is telling us, see, God's not good. God doesn't love you in the midst of diagnosis, right? God's not good. God's not for you. Remember that sin you did? That's why this is here today, right? And he's taking the past, and he's taking the future, and he's just he's looking to muddy the waters to make us question who God is and what God has done for us. And do you notice why he says the young men... Have overcome. Look at verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The reason they have overcome, the reason we have hope that we can overcome, is because Jesus has already secured the victory, and then he's given us his word. And in his word, if we remain in it, we have what we need, right, to continue to persevere, to continue to overcome. Because Scripture reminds us of the truths of what God has said to balance the lies that are being hurled at us, the promises of what we can long for and what we can hope in, rather than the lies that are being thrown our way. So in Ephesians, it'll tell us the Word of God is a sword, right, that's able to cut, right? Hebrews says it actually divides um, our thoughts and our intents and our motives, right? Right? we were reminded of Jesus' temptation and as Satan looked to offer him things, what did he respond with? Scripture. As we look at the Psalms, the Psalms give us permission to feel emotions and to feel despair in these hard things. And yet they're always balanced with, but here's what truth is. I know this is how you feel, but this is truth. We see this in Psalm 22, right? Where David is like, I'm I'm not a man, I'm a worm. And I'm, I'm drowning myself in my tears at night. And the people wag their, 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 their tongues and their, 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 their fingers at me. And then he goes, but you were good to our fathers. And you, you met their needs, and, and they persevered. And then he would say, but here's how I feel. And then he would go back to truth. And we see this, this fighting of the accusation of the lies of our accuser with the truths of Scripture. Honestly, it's looking at the, the truth of Scripture in the way that it shows character flaws in pretty much everyone. They're honest stories that are not like painted and like left all the ugly out. Because we're reminded that God pursues the broken, that He heals those who are sick, that He brings freedom to the captive. Like being in Scripture reminds us of our truths and our promises that God will never leave us nor forsake us. He is already freed us and broken the power of sin. And now through the, his spirit and through his word, he is equipping us to continue to persevere in this, to continue to walk with Jesus in this. So I want you to think about it in this regard. Carson is nine now, our, our daughter. And so we're, you know, the preteen years are not far, um, which means the teenage years are, are closer than I want. And, and so if I can begin to, to talk to her about what some of that's going to look like, Hey, so Carson, right now, like, you just, you just love us, and there's a day coming where you're going to struggle to like us, and she's like, oh, Dad, that's not true. Well, it is true. Well, when she gets there and she feels some of that, and those, those moments, all of a sudden she's like, oh, right, like, you told me to expect this. You told me to be looking for this. It's what Scripture does, right? Like, the, those emotions that she's going to feel there aren't going to be true, and so when I've gone ahead and told her, hey, they're going to happen, and we're going to get through it, and here's what's going to happen. Like, right, Scripture is saying we have an enemy. And until Jesus returns or we die and go to be with him, we have one who's going to be accusing us. And here's how we deal with it. We deal with it with truth that triumphs over our emotions, that, that brings truth into lies and brings light into dark places. And so we have affection for Jesus because our sins are forgiven. We have affection for Jesus because we are over- we have overcome and he has given us what we need to continue to persevere. And then finally, we have affection for Jesus because he allows us to know God. Look at verses 13 thirteen and 14. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him. You know him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He just repeats it again that the word allows us to know God. His spirit allows us to know God. Jesus' death and his resurrection, his perfect life, has given us the right to be called sons and daughters, to know God, to be in relationship with him. And so this morning, if I sit here and tell you, hey, you know, I love my wife, and you're like, oh, what do you love about her? She's a woman. She's five foot four. right?" And I start, like, giving you some facts about her that are like, somewhat cold and calculated, it's like do you love her? Right? Like that's not that's not what you would expect. No one's writing Hallmark cards about that. No one's writing poetry about that. It's like that's brutal, dude. <laughs> like but if I if I start to tell you about shared memories, stories, experiences, hard days where God got us through good days, right? If I start to tell you those type of things you're like, oh, "Man, there's there's depth of relationship there. There's companionship there. There's love there. There's pursuit there. Those are good things." Right? So if we ask, "Man, how are you in Jesus? Where's your affection for Jesus? Do you know Jesus?" and we're like, "He was born in Bethlehem. He died on a cross." Right, if we just start kind of reciting facts that are true and right, just like the facts are true and right about Carmen, but they don't show depth. They don't show relationship. They don't show like connection. Church, we've been invited to know the creator of the universe. We've been give, given a word God breathed from him to, that reveals his character to us. We've been given the spirit who will affirm truth about him. That we can see and know him clearly. That we have access to him through prayer. Right? And that there will be a day where we will be with him face to face. That we would not take that for granted. That we would not be content with saying my affection is only as, as deep as my knowledge. But that it would be built on relationship and trust. God's faithfulness man, in this situation, when I thought all was lost, here's what God did, here's how he met me, here's the verse he gave me, here's how he got me through this, right? And we we begin to talk about God was near to me. He's dear to me, and here's why. And that it's not mere, like, just recounting truths about him from scripture, but it's about our own interaction with him. And so, John has given us these three things to stir our affection, and then he quickly reminds them that there's something that can affect it. There's something that will attack it. There's a reason this morning that some of our affection would not be strong for Jesus. And here's what he says, so do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. All right, so when he says don't love the world quickly, he's not saying creation, right? We're given creation to enjoy. He's not saying people Obviously, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, right? What he's talking about is a system. It's, it's, it's a way of thinking, right, that wants to ignore God, that it wants to pretend like he doesn't exist, that it wants to be independent of him, that it doesn't recognize him. Here's how Paul would write this uh, to the church in Ephesus. This is chapter 2. So he says, so we were dead in the trespasses and sin in which we once walked. We, listen, we followed the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we were following the enemy, Satan, even if you didn't think you were right. We were following the, the way this world goes, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, right? That's the world that John is referring to. A world that would just say, hey, it's it's not satanic. It's just gonna take you away from God, right? Which then in itself is following Satan, right? That we don't have to be like devil worshipers to just not be following God. Knowing that John says there's only two ways. We're either pursuing him or we're not. And so the world is a way of thinking that would just say, focus on the here and now. Don't don't look at Jesus. Don't look at at what he calls us to, what he asks of us. You focus on you. And we know that we can have but one master. And so we either follow the course of this world, which might actually look really religious and have nothing to do with Jesus, or we're following Jesus. So he says, He says, Don't love the world or the things in it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he gives us three things here in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the first, the desires of the flesh. Right? It's that we're just controlled by our our lust. Right? And this could be for pleasure. It could be for food. It could be for drink. It could be for power. It's just anything that we want. And we're like, we have to have that. And we build our life around it. And we are controlled by it. We don't control it. Right? it's, It's potentially even good things that we now abuse because it controls us. The desires of the flesh, the second, the desires of the eyes, right? These are things that we're looking for. We're coveting power, right? Acclaim, approval, again, lust, or the pride of life. And the pride of life, the first two are things we don't have, right, that we're looking for and we're longing for. We're coveting. We're like, I want this in my life. It would make things better. The pride of life is the, th- the stuff we have, and it is glorifying ourselves that we have it, right? And it's saying, because of my education, I'm better than you. Because of my house, I'm better than you, or at least better than the people over here, right? Because of my upbringing or my family's name or the amount of money that I have, or the amount of power that I have, or the amount of relationships that I have, or the type of relationships that I have, we're, just, we're looking to elevate ourselves over others. We're looking to glorify self through ambition and, and contempt. And So what John is saying is, look, if you are being led by the desires of your flesh, the desire of your eyes, and the pride of your life, just know this is not from the Father, but it's from the world, and the world is being led away from God by Satan. Church, I think if we're not careful, um, we make those really big sins. And I just want to remind us that it can be subtle. And so I want to give you an example of how how I could be living for the world this morning um, at Redeemer instead of for God. If my greatest concern is is to pull a service off that appears to love Jesus, that looks like, you know, simple or humble or God-honoring, and that we want everything to go the way we want it to go. Because I get a little credit for that, or a little, like it appears like I'm a good pastor. No one is going to throw a rock at me for that. And I may be following the course of the world which is looking to glorify self instead of Jesus. Instead of saying what I long for most is for God to move. And what we need this morning is not Redeemer and what we need this morning is not Jeremy. What we need this morning is is the Lord. And we need His Spirit to move and to work among us. And so we we can do some things that make you feel like that has occurred or we can actually let the Lord do that. And are we okay when he doesn't, right? Like, it's, it's one of the reasons we keep things as bare bones and simple as we do, because we don't want to try to fool ourselves into being okay with worldly success that comes into the church and says, well, it's growing a little bit, and no one's upset, and those things are all good, and so God's obviously at work. No, no, we want to know God's at work. And he's meeting with us, and then he's moving for his name and for his glory. What are we actually pursuing? Is it my, my credit, or is it God's spirit among us? We, we can do that in, in gospel communities. We can do that in any part of our, like, pursuit of of religion. So what John is saying is, are you pursuing the things of God for the glory of God? Or are you pursuing things for yourself, for your glory, for your pleasure, for your good? Church, we are called not to remove ourselves from the world, Right? But we are traveling through it. This is not our home. We are aliens here. We don't put down roots. We're moving to where we belong. And so we continue to live amongst those who currently don't know Jesus because we have hope in him and know that he can transform and rescue and save. But would this be our prayer this morning? As, our, as we ask, where's my affection for Jesus? This would be our prayer. This is Psalm seventy-three, twenty-five. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That we could say with honesty that what we long for and desire is to make much of Jesus, to know him, to enjoy him, to have our affections stirred for him. Not to be perceived as that, but for that to actually be true. So the band is going to come back up. Um, there will be some folks in the back of the room that would be glad to visit with you, to talk with you, to pray with you if necessary. Feel free to go back there for for any reason, whether it's sermon-related or not. But would we take a moment or two to just ask the Spirit to stir our affections for Jesus? Maybe it's to realize I have no affection for Jesus, and yet He is wooing me and calling me even this morning to be His, to belong to Him. And then to ask, what is it that I desire maybe above Jesus this morning? Like, what is it that I, my life would actually be pursuing more than him? And to know that if we're doing that, that it is pushing our affection for Jesus out. That love for the world means we, we don't have love for Jesus. And love for Jesus is going to push love for the world out. So where is our love this morning? Let's pray.